Hello, and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, I'll tell you how you can download my guide to the best night sky sites in 2020 for free. I'll also talk about how, when it comes to developing your child's love of the stars, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. As you may know, I write and self-publish my own astronomy books in my spare time. I do this for a number of reasons, partly because I had to cash in my pension and I'm looking for passive income, but honestly, mostly because I want to. And while the extra money comes in handy, it's certainly not enough for me to give up my day job and retire. I say all this because I recently just published a new guide for 2020, and yes, I'm going to talk about it. But no, I'm not going to throw a sales pitch at you and try to convince you your life will be better if you buy it. In fact, I'm giving it away for free. Well, let me be more specific. Here it comes, you're thinking. I can't literally give away physical copies of the book for free. That would probably bankrupt me. But I can give you a free PDF copy of the book. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't need to write to me. I won't be sending coins and calendars to you in the mail, and you don't need to donate anything to your favorite charity. In a moment, I'm going to give you the URL so you can directly download the book for yourself. So what's the catch? Well, you have to listen to me talk about it first. Sorry. Called 2020 The Night Skies Sights, it's a pocket guide to over 100 astronomical events you can see without a telescope throughout the next year. It was designed for anyone and everyone, so you don't need to know anything about astronomy to use it. That being said, if you've got some experience, I'm sure you'll still find it useful. As with pretty much all my books, I wrote it for me. I wanted a guide that would show me the events for each month, as well as some star maps and the phases of the moon. So that's what I did. I published this book before, but for reasons I won't bore you with, it was in a large format with color images, so it was expensive to produce. The images I use now are black and white, which has reduced the printing costs quite substantially. As a result, I can increase the page count, decrease the physical dimensions, and cut the retail price in half. I call that a win. It's not perfect, but I'm pretty happy with it. I'll definitely be using it next year, and I hope you will too. So that's my blurb. I'm about to give you the URL so you can download your own PDF copy, but please be aware there are two versions, one for the United Kingdom and one for North America. The North American edition is primarily designed for use within the United States, but it should work pretty well in Canada too. If you want the UK version, go to tinyurl.com forward slash 2020 NSS UK PDF. If you want the North American version, go to tinyurl.com forward slash 2020 NSS US PDF. You're welcome to share the link or, or order PDFs with anyone you want. I recommend downloading it from a laptop or a desktop computer as mobile devices can sometimes be a problem. Lastly, if you have any questions or need me to email you a copy, please feel free to drop me a line at astronomywriter at gmail.com. NASA is looking to return to Pluto and has funded the Southwest Research Institute to study the important attributes, feasibility, and cost of a possible future Pluto orbiter mission. This study will develop the spacecraft and payload design requirements and make preliminary cost and risk assessments for new technologies. The New Horizons mission, which flew past Pluto and its system of moons in 2015, 
has returned data that has made a compelling case for a follow-up mission. The study is one of 10 different mission studies that NASA is sponsoring to prepare for the next Planetary Science Decadal Survey. The results of these studies will be delivered to the National Academy Planetary Decadal Study that will begin in 2020. Astronomers have discovered a gas cloud that contains information about an early phase of galaxy and star formation nearly 850 million years after the Big Bang. The cloud was found during observations of a distant quasar and has the properties that astronomers expect from the precursors of modern-day dwarf galaxies. The cloud's chemistry is surprisingly modern, showing that the first stars in the universe must have formed very quickly after the Big Bang. Incidentally, the word quickly should be taken in context. Please bear in mind the universe is thought to be over 13 billion years old. While things have been fairly quiet on the astronomical news front, there's a big event coming on the 11th which has astronomers excited. On this date, observers will have the rare opportunity to see the planet Mercury transit or pass in front of the Sun's disk. While not a unique event, this won't be happening again for, for another 13 years, so you'll want to make the most of it. The transit begins at 12.35pm Greenwich Mean Time for observers in the United Kingdom. If you live in the Eastern Time Zone of the United States, that's 7.35 in the morning. Central Time is 6.35 a.m., Mountain Time is 5.35, while Pacific Time is 4.35. Obviously then, the transit begins before sunrise for anyone living in the western half of North America. The transit ends at 6.04 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Unfortunately, observers in the United Kingdom will miss the end of the transit, as the sun will be below the horizon by that time. However, anyone in the eastern half of North America will witness the entire event as it will end at 1.04pm Eastern Time. For observers in Central Time, that's 12.04pm, while Mountain Time is 11.04am and Pacific Time is 10.04am. If you want to see this for yourself, check to see if a local club or observatory is offering a free public viewing. Griffith Observatory, here in Los Angeles, will be streaming the event live from 6.15am. Pacific Standard Time. You can watch it uh, by going to tinyurl.com forward slash gomercury. If you have your own telescope, you can safely observe the sun by attaching a filter or by projecting the sun's image onto a piece of card or paper. And here's my legal common sense disclaimer. Never, under any circumstances, look directly at the sun through a telescope or binoculars without first taking the proper precautions. Also, avoid using welder's glass or any filters that attach to your eyepiece. If the glass isn't made to the correct specifications, it can crack from the heat of the sun and you could be permanently blinded. Lastly, don't look with just your eyes. This can also lead to permanent damage and you won't see Mercury anyway. The planet is too small and the sun is too bright. Let's assume you're lucky enough to have clear skies, time off work and a good telescope to view the transit. What will you see? Mercury will appear as a very small, circular black dot against the sun, and unlike sunspots, it will be fairly well defined. If you're not sure, you could always make a note of the suspected planet's position, and then come back 30 minutes later to see if it's moved. So that's Mercury. What about the other planets? Venus is still creeping away from the sun in the sky, and can be seen low over the, low over the southwestern horizon after sunset. You'll still need a fairly unobstructed view, but if there's a gap between the trees and or any neighbouring houses, you could catch a glimpse. The planet is bright, white and pretty unmistakable. 
Jupiter and Saturn are still hovering over the horizon towards the southwest after sunset, but both are now past their best. Jupiter is getting to be very low, and telescop sorry, telescopically, is probably not worth bothering with. Saturn is faring a little better. Its altitude above the horizon is less than ideal, but you could probably still squeeze in a look before it gets too low. Uranus and Neptune are both well placed for observation throughout the night. Unless you have a large telescope, neither planet is large enough to show anything of interest, but there's a sense of satisfaction in seeing them both for the first time. Lastly, Mars is still struggling to rise into the pre-dawn twilight, but can be glimpsed as a faint, coppery star moving among the stars of Virgo. It's best to wait a while if you want to put in some serious telescope time with the red planet. As for the moon, well that turns full on the 12th and then reaches last quarter a week later. The Leonid meteor shower reaches its maximum in the early hours of the 18th, but with the moon at nearly last quarter, its light might dry out the fainter shooting stars. Realistically, you may see less than 10 an hour. Next year, the moon will appear as a crescent in the evening sky and the shower will put on a much better show. If you are a member of an astronomy group, there's one question you're likely to hear more than any other. My son or daughter is really into astronomy and wants a telescope. What should I buy? The answer usually goes something like this. Don't. If they're interested, make them learn the stars and constellations first. And then, if they're still interested, maybe buy some binoculars. And then, maybe a small telescope. Not a big one though, because you'll probably be wasting your money, because your kid will probably lose interest after a few months. Well, of course they will. There's way too many if, buts and ands there. It's hard for most adults to stay interested for that long. Imagine being a kid and being taken to a toy store and then being told you have to learn where all the toys are first, and then maybe you can play with some of the smaller toys, and then, if you're still interested, you can play with that big huge toy you've got your eye on. As a parent of a nearly four-year-old, I can tell you that's not going to work. And here's a confession. I used to say all those if, buts and ands to the parents of young stargazers too. But then I thought about my six-year-old self. I did learn the stars and constellations. I did use binoculars, and I did use a small telescope, but not in that order. I did it all at the same time. I was looking at the moon with my eyes, my dad's binoculars, and my brother's department store telescope. At the same time, I was learning about the stars and planets by reading about them in books. I was also using my eyes, my dad's binoculars, and my brother's department store telescope to explore the stars even before I knew what I was looking at. Now, I know kids are different now, but there's no reason why you can't buy them a small telescope and let them explore the night sky. Just don't buy a department store telescope. The ones that make ridiculous claims like, it magnifies a thousand times. Those telescopes are pretty much useless. You can buy a real telescope from a reputable manufacturer for about the same price. For example, we have a Celestron first scope. It's small, very portable, I can, carry it with, I can carry it with one hand, and it's ideal for taking outside for a quick squint at the moon and stars. By the way, I'm not sponsored by Celestron, and other manufacturers make equally fine, low-cost beginner scopes too. Orion have their own version, called the Fun Scope. Both are about 50 bucks, so neither will break the bank. And an investment like this can pay dividends, but you'll need to be invested yourself. There's little or no point in buying a kid a telescope and then telling them to have at it. Sure, they'll look at the moon and maybe discover a bright star or planet, but they need support, encouragement and guidance. Download an app, buy a book, learn the night sky for yourself and explore the universe with your child. Not only are you nurturing and developing their curiosity,
but you're also fostering a love for the stars that could last a lifetime. That alone is surely worth the $50 investment. And trust me, they will love you all the more for it. Here's this episode's trivia question. And as always, here's a shameless plug for my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book. It's available on Amazon from my author page. In the UK, go to tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon UK. In the US, you'll find my author page at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon US. So here's the question. In what year did the Leonid Binchor shower produce a storm of shooting stars at the rate of 60,000 an hour? Was it A. 1956, B, 1961, C, 1966, or D, 1971. As always, you'll hear some pretty music for a moment and then I'll come back with the answer. Welcome back. The answer to the trivia question is C, 1966. The storms occur roughly every 33 years. The next Leonid meteor storm is expected in 2031. So that's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, and I hope you did, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple, and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash S-N-S-P-O-D. That's tinyurl.com forward slash S-N-S-P-O-D. Again, if you're interested in my books, and why wouldn't you be, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon US in the US and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon UK in the UK. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you. <laughs>